Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On June 6th, I was joined by a panel of experts to talk about how we can put our battered democracy back on track and strengthen it for the next generation. Democracy dies in darkness, so we've been warned endlessly. But now in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol, there's fresh fear that our democracy could die in the light if we don't do enough to save it. Today, we'll explore if the guardrails of democracy are strong enough to hold through this fraught chapter. Here to help us do that is a panel of distinguished and diverse voices. Joining us are Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion, the CEO of Voto Latino, Maria Teresa Kumar, author of the newsletter, Letters from an American, historian Heather Cox Richardson, and Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens. We are so grateful to have you all with us. And I want to start with talking about the fact that we've heard for years that democracy is down for the count, and that a simple nip and tuck is not going to save us at this point. We need a full rejuvenation. Brett, you have said that the U.S. can no longer hold itself up as the paragon of liberal democracy when one party is in the thrall of a mendacious Mussolini manque. I want to get your take on where we are right now in terms of how strong our democracy is. Well, you know, it's in, it's in the nature of being a columnist that I'd, I'd forgotten that I'd written that line, and that, that was probably just a few weeks ago, but thank you for refreshing my memory, Jane, and it's, it's a real pleasure to be- <laughs> It was uh, a few weeks ago. And my wonderful fellow panel, uh, panelists. Look, um, in a healthy democracy, the fringes, the political fringes bend toward the center because they want to gain political traction by making themselves respectable. In an unhealthy democracy, and you can think of Weimar Germany as one example, the center bends towards the fringe. And what I fear we have been witnessing in the United States, but particularly on my side of, uh, uh, or traditionally my side of the political uh, aisle, is a center that's been bending more, uh, ever more toward, uh, uh, toward the fringe. That's a very, uh, that's a very worrying sign. Some of this also happens uh, on the left, but I think it's extremely notable that in the field of candidates that uh, that presented themselves in the Democratic uh, primaries uh, over a year ago, it was really the most moderate member of the bunch who wound up being the nominee and being the president. And that's not what, what has happened on, on the Republican side. I'm a great believer that if you are a conservative, you should call out the extremism on the conservative side. If you're a liberal do uh, uh, do likewise, and I I really w- worry that at least on one side politically we have an entire party that is giving itself over to this new demagogic um, illiberalism, which uh, should terrify any uh, any serious conservative uh, who believes in 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 the system that was uh, given to us. Um, by our founders and and improved by by later generations. You do have three children, and you mentioned the word terrified a minute ago. The question is, are you worried that um, this really could be an issue when your children are are coming of age? I worry about them entering not just a uh, 
political mood, but a world of technologies that is geared toward um, focusing on and amplifying the loudest and most extreme voices. And I think that um, one of the ways in which we have to, one of the things for which we, we, we have to fear for our uh, democracy is that the new technologies of social uh, media have created possibilities for mob-style politics, which had largely been eradicated in the second half of the 20th century. You know, 200 years ago, you could bring a mob together in a crowded town square and uh, and and harm people or 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 destroy things, and then that 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 was no longer a possibility in the in the era of suburbia. But now you can do it on Twitter. Now you can do it through uh, through Facebook, and it's how, in effect, we got um, the previous uh, the previous Twitter uh, the previous Twitter presidency. So these are technologies that are going to be with us for a long time, and if we don't learn how to master them for the benefit of liberal democracy, they will master us, Jane. Ominous, very ominous. I'm going to turn now to, to Maria uh, Teresa because part of what you do at Voto Latino is to really be a cheerleader for democracy. You're out there trying to encourage uh, Latinos, young Latinos to vote and to believe in democracy. And yet every day there's something new about uh, taking voting rights away from people and upending the rule of law. And Every day there does seem to be something. The question I have for you is, how do you get out there in the wake of all that and talk about the strength of our democracy? Well, thank you for so much for having this conversation and you're having it now in a timely manner where we are trying to figure out as a government, as a NGO, as a people, what democracy means to all of us. When the 2020 election came about in the midst of a pandemic, we saw not only Latinos participate, but young Latinos eclipsed the vote share of the older Latinos in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, even Pennsylvania. And they are about to eclipse the vote share of older Latinos in North Carolina and in Texas. And so when you take a step back and say, where is it that the GOP-led state legislators want to restrict voting and the possibility of a fair and certifiable election like we just saw, it is not happenstance that it is where you see this emerging group of young Latinos that are part of a generational shift. The only place that you don't see that shift where Latino youth are nowhere near a larger vote share is Florida. So that's a different first, a different state that we're going to have to sort out. Right. But it's not by accident and it's not by coincidence. But what we were able to demonstrate in 2018 is that when you vote, your vote makes a difference. And now our job is to make sure that we are communicating that there are actors disproportionate on the Republican side that want to take that vote away. EJ, I will ask you because the day after the sacking of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, you thought that the insurrection was somehow going to wake people up and that it was going to be an inflection point for the good. And yet we look back six months and there are people who would argue it hasn't been for the good, that all it's done was solidify um, people or galvanize people who think that the election was stolen. So have, how do you sort of net out now that you've had some some time to reflect on what happened January 6th. 
You know, on this optimism, one of my kids have, have taught me a term which I have to be aware of. It's called toxic positivity. Uh, and that sometimes you can be in so in danger of seeking out what might be good out there and therefore miss something in the process. Let me just say a couple of things. One is I am still conjuring mendacious Mussolini manque. Uh, maybe we can work Mar-a-Lago in there. But let me sort of talk about optimism or hope. Hope is probably a better word than optimism. The hope we could take um, at the beginning of the year and where things are now. Um, when we look at the election we had in 2020, it is really remarkable what we did as a country in the middle of a pandemic, um, the hardest time to have an election. When we looked at the election coming toward us in March, we wondered, how are we going to do this uh, as a country? People are not going to want to stand in lines if they can get a virus. People are going to be very afraid. And what we did as a country was what the United States is supposed to do uh, at our best, which is we were incredibly inventive. We uh, reinvented our voting system so that people could vote more easily by mail, so they could vote earlier. This was a great achievement. What have we done with this achievement? You had Donald Trump uh, going around the country and doing it still, saying that this entire thing was a fraud, that mail voting uh, which he has used himself, is somehow corrupt. Um, and then you've had Republican states, 14 uh, at last count and rising, um, using this as an excuse to roll back all of the advances we made in 2020 uh, to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, so while I am and I try to be a hopeful person by nature, uh, I have found the success Trump has had um, in pushing even a Republican to claim not to uh, uh, agree with him that the election was stolen, uh, putting in these measures that are designed to make it harder for people to vote. Dr. Richardson, let me just say that you have cultivated a following that is that of a rock star. You have, through your measured um, sort of putting it into context through history analysis, helped people, literally, I've heard people say, she helps me stay sane. She helps me stay off the ledge. And you've done it because you have given people context. And yet, um, I've heard you, sometimes I listen to you, I, I was listening to an interview with you, and you're so calm. And you're talking about the fact that we could be headed down the road toward authoritarianism, and yet you're so calm. You also say we could be headed in another direction, which is that America is overdue for renewal. So my question to you right now is, which is the front runner, authoritarianism or renewal? Well, any time that we have a, a, in America, when we have a moment in which um, everything seems all up in the air, we have a moment when, in fact, we could go down the road to authoritarianism, or on the other hand, we could be reborn. And this has happened before in our history. This is the fourth major reworking we've had. One of the things that's important right now, though, that I think to, to realize is that, first of all, I am very calm because if you say it's a done deal and it's over and we're becoming an authoritarian country, then people aren't going to fight any longer. And one of the things that's very important to do is to continue to put skin in the game and try and right the ship of state. I'm never going to come out and say it's all over as long as I'm still here to keep on arguing. But we are in a position that is, I think, a five alarm fire. 
And I don't say that lightly. I do know American history. I can think of only one comparison to where we are right now in the past, and that was 1879, and probably nobody cares about it any longer. I could tell you if you want. But uh, one of the things that's important really to recognize right now while people focus on the former president, on former President Trump, that he did not come from nowhere. He ran parallel to a, a, a trail that the Republicans had been forging really since about 1986, which depended on voter suppression. Later on on manipulating the media through things like the Fox News Channel, then through gerrymandering and, and uh, through the demonization of Democrats. And that is deadly dangerous to have. It's the first time in our history that we have had one of our two major parties actively working against democracy. That's never happened before. Not in the national level. It certainly worked at the state level in the American South during Reconstruction. And what I keep thinking is that we are looking at the attempt of essentially the creation of a single party state, a one party state across America, the same way we had one across the American South from the 1870s through the 1960s. And if you think about what that means, uh, for everybody, that means a depressed economy, that means violence, that means laws that don't apply equally to, to anybody. It depends on who you know, it depends on, on who you are. And it is, uh, it is obviously not a democracy. And I think we're on the verge of that right now, unless we get the other side of what's going on, which as you say, is this wonderfully exciting moment where so many people are turning out to vote and to care and to call their congressmen and their senators and their local authorities and running for office. There is that voice out there as well. We're gonna talk about some of the ways in which we can shore up this, this sort of flagging democracy. But first we wanna start um, with a video question and Heather, I'm going to ask you to address this first, which goes to what President Biden called the greatest uh, unprecedented assault on our democracy. Here it is. Hi, I'm Stephanie from San Antonio, Texas. Laws that are sweeping the country are making it harder for people to vote. How concerned are you that depriving the people of the right to vote is going to undermine the strength of our democracy? You had talked about the fact that history is rife with voter suppression. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. But what is different? Can you characterize what's different this time? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily different. It looks very much like what happened, as I say, especially in the American South, but also in parts of the American North, beginning in the 1870s and reaching into the 1890s. And what happens is that um, people who are, are searching for power in the 1870s, and I would argue in the present as well, are people who are trying to concentrate wealth upward in society, as they have in America since 1981. If you look at any chart, you will see that what economists called the Great Compression from 1933 through 19, um, 1980 turned into the great uh, divergence after 1981. And as they're trying to establish power and wealth, um, what they do is they begin to argue that people who are uh, interested in using a, a federal government to try and level the playing field through regulating business, for example, or providing a basic social safety net or investing in infrastructure are communists or are socialists. You know, this idea that somehow people who are uh, interested in uh, civil rights legislation, for example, are going down this slippery slope that Chinese communists, for example, did, or the USSR during that we really focused on, especially in um, uh, in the Reagan years. So they begin to demonize their opponents, and if that's the case, you know, it only makes sense that you're not going to go ahead and let them vote. And beginning in, in 1986, the Reagan Republicans began to talk about what they called voter integrity, which they said quite said privately in memos would they hoped uh, make African-Americans less likely to vote. 
And increasingly, you get the idea that uh, in order for America to truly be an America of independent um, individualists, you need to make sure that only a certain group of people vote. And this is, again, exactly what happened in the 1890s. And what we got from that was Jim Crow legislation and new state constitutions in every state except Massachusetts that curtailed the right largely of poor people, white and black, to vote until then you get the next stage. This is the stage that historians like me look at and worry about terribly. And that's when you start to talk about your opponents, in this case, Democrats, um, as uh, vermin. And from there, it's a short step to having uh, political purges in, um, we, we, we look at them overseas, but of course we had them in the American South and in other parts of America as well, in which uh, people who voted the wrong ticket were hanged. So we've done it before, they're very clear steps and we're very close to that last step again here in the present. Brett, that reminds me of something that your fellow conservative Mona Charon wrote about recently, which was this whole concept of the fact that, that the Republicans have sort of galvanized around election integrity, even though it's been called by former Trump officials the most secure election in our history, the 2020 presidential election. And um, in talking about an election integrity, which is the justification for trying to take away people's right to vote in many cases, it reminded me of another column. I'm an avid Brett Stevens reader, one of my favorites, which was The Annihilation of Shame, which uh, you wrote about two years ago. And I, I reread it in preparation for this show because I think it goes to, writ large, a lot of what we're talking about today. Could you talk about the concept of annihilation of shame? Well, Jane, I think you're better versed in my columns than uh, uh, than I am. I can hardly remember what I wrote last week, but I'm 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 always grateful that at least someone someone did their homework for 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 these conversations. Look, I I actually. Um, don't accept entirely accept the premise of of the question. I don't. Uh, to me, the the issue of trying to uh, remove the vote isn't isn't really the salient one for me. I'm more worried about the software than the hardware of uh, our democracy. The the uh, spirit of liberalism, rather than the uh, the mechanics of democracy. But what I generally mean by the annihilation of shame is that. Um, the guardrails that keep a democracy from slipping into um, either autocracy or a kind of um, uh, a demagogic uh, populism uh, come from a certain set of sort of unstated uh, understandings, for example, about how we treat our uh, political um, opponents. Do we treat them as um, uh, legitimate or or illegitimate? Do we try to criminalize uh, uh, politics or tr uh, criminalize uh, the political uh, opposition? Uh, um, these are things that this this is an area where guardrails um, came apart. I think from the moment that Trump, not just from the moment that Trump announced his presidency, but really from a very specific moment in my mind, which was in July of 2015, after. Trump's uh, 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 obscene comments about John McCain's uh, war service, um, in which he, you know, famously said that he didn't consider McCain a war hero because McCain had been uh, uh, had been captured, and Rush Limbaugh came uh, rushing to uh, to Trump's rescue. And I think at that point, that was really a moment of um, the annihilation of shame, because here was something that ought to have been so sacred um, across the political spectrum. 
the uh, military service of someone who agree or, or, or disagree had paid um, a, a heavy uh, a heavy price in in uh, defense of his country. And there was no real consequence to Trump. On the contrary, people seemed to like it. I've sometimes um, thought of um, the Trump presidency as a gigantic striptease act in the sense that the more obscene it, uh, obscene it was, the more a certain type of Trump voter seemed uh, seemed to like it. They they enjoyed the shamelessness of his behavior up up until and through his refusal to accept the legitimacy of the last election and his support for the uh, for the uh, insurrection and uh, and the sacking of of the Capitol. So it's that it's that it's that again software side of democracy. Right, the values that uh, inform it, the customs, the habits, the sense of what is done and not done in a robust democratic system that seems to be uh, falling apart. And it's falling apart because shameless people have come to learn that there is no consequence to them, political or reputational, if they just stick to uh, being shameless. Moving on now to Maria Teresa, because um, there are four, nearly 400 bills on the books right now that would somehow restrict voting. Now, what is your comment on that in terms of how people are being deprived of the vote? I'll share with you that the infrastructure of our democracy, not the big D, but the little D, is under threat. And I go back to the findings of Northern Illinois University where they did a, an audit of the and ranking states on access to the voting booth. And Texas rated dead last and Georgia was second to last. If in Texas it's already really difficult to vote, they had a fair certified election. And now they're trying to put on more restrictions because they're reading the tea leaves of an emerging demographic. It begs the question, by 2022, there'll be over 250,000 more eligible Latino youth to vote in Texas alone. If they had fair and safe elections in 2020, why add restrictions? And I encourage folks to think about this is they were going to pass legislation that limited voting on a Sunday. They were going to provide partisan poll workers to go into the voting booth to intimidate voters. And there's a history of that. This is the modern day uh, Jim Crow. And what is interesting, and again, frightening at the same time, is that this is the same, same legislator that provided for constitutional carry, that you no longer need a background check to go around Texas armed. It's almost as if you're begging for a perfect storm of arming individuals and going into the polling booth to intimidate individuals that you may not want to participate. We've already lived this history. And we can beg the we can we can hem and haw and say, well, it's not really racial. It's hard to believe that it's not racial and it's not demographically based on generation. If you don't see who's disproportionately impacted, I'm going to go back to EJ on that note because, um, <clears throat> sort of, I guess, cynically, it's been said that uh, stop the steal turned into perfect the steal. Former speechwriter for Ted Cruz, Amanda Carpenter, is predicting that by 2024, it's going to be steal it back, which, again, cynical, but you have done work in tracking the trajectory of what you call, now let me get this one right, fraudulent voter fraud. This whole thing about the big lie in terms of 
the magnitude of damage that this has done. This is not a genie you put back in the bottle. This is out there with 70% of, the, of Republicans believing that, um, that Joe Biden was not, uh, is not the duly elected president. So that's a lot to, <laughs> to, to go on. But what, what are your comments on that? Well, I think some of these laws that Maria, Maria Teresa uh, spoke about uh, look like they were translated directly from the Hungarian or the Russian uh, in trying to assert control over the electoral system. Um, some of these laws allow political bodies to supersede the normal bodies that produce honest vote counts. In other words, and this goes to Amanda Carpenter's point, um, uh, to legalize what Trump was trying to do this time, which is to say, yes, um, you know, we may count all the votes and discover that the legitimate outcome is a Democrat wins. But if a Republican legislature doesn't like it, they can somehow push that aside. Um, you have uh, these uh, bizarre, uh, they're not recounts, they're sort of games being played uh, uh, with uh, ballots um, you know, organized by a perfectly named group, Cyber Ninjas. We're going to put our democracy in the hands of Cyber Ninjas. These are obviously Trump groups. Um, this is very dangerous. And this goes back to what you were raising about um, Brett talking about the mechanics. Sure, there are some issues with mechanics that don't necessarily go to the heart of democracy. What machines count the ballots uh, better uh, if you have very extended early voting, do you add days or not? We can debate about that. Do you want um, you know, uh, instant runoffs where you rank candidates? I happen to be for that, but you can be for or against that and not be undermining our democracy. Um, but what we're seeing now is that married to the threat of a far more authoritarian approach to government. Um, but that very crisis, I am hoping... Uh, calls forth the movements to change it. And we need that kind of organizing going forward to save the democracy. Heather, in talking about the people, you know, there's a lot of disparaging talk about the people who think the election was stolen. And yet, if you talk to them, and I've, I've read interviews with them, I've listened to them, and, and they really believe the election was stolen. They've been told the election was stolen. And repeatedly, and, and if you say something often enough, it, it's true, it becomes true. Is there any kind of parallel to, to this massive kind of disinformation campaign that we've seen go on? Is there anything in history you can point to that's remotely similar? Sure, two things. The first is in the 1850s when the elite Southern slaveholders did exactly the same thing. They made sure that their voters who were disaffected from the economy the way it was at the time because the, the, all the money was moving upward. They made sure that the, the, the smaller white farmers could not have access to information coming from outside the South and increasingly turned them against the African, their African-American neighbors so that, the, that they would continue to insist on supporting not just white supremacy, but the system of white supremacy that funneled all the money to the top. And that was very clear when that happened. You also see, saw it with, in the, uh, the 1950s with Joe McCarthy. Of course, what the Republicans have done really since at least the 1990s was the, the plan that Joe McCarthy laid out in the 1950s, which is simply lie and stay ahead of the game enough that by the time there somebody catches up to you, people have believed the lie. 
Brett, at the risk of bringing up another one of your columns, I'm going to do it anyway. I will tell you that you indeed wrote one last fall lamenting the death of principled conservatism. And before she was stripped from her leadership role in the Republican, um, the Republican House, Liz Cheney wound up sounding like she was channeling your column. And we have a piece of that footage. We're going to take a look at it and then ask you about it on the other side. I am a conservative Republican. And the most conservative of conservative principles is reverence for the rule of law. The Electoral College has voted. More than 60 state and federal courts, including multiple judges the former president appointed, have rejected his claims. The Trump Department of Justice investigated the former president's claims of widespread fraud and found no evidence to support them. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. Those who refuse to accept the rulings of our courts are at war with the Constitution. Our duty is clear. Every one of us who has sworn the oath must act to prevent the unraveling of our democracy. This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Brett, what does the Liz Cheney saga say about the state of the Republican Party? democracy, any of it? Well, I mean, I think Liz Cheney was exceptionally uh, brave. I've always been a fan of hers, and uh, I was pleased to see the way in which she, you know, has comported herself, not just not just in the last few months, but really as one of the few genuinely conservative voices during the Trump years who um, consistently uh, opposed the president when she opposed uh, the policy. You know, one of the problems with um, Trumpism is that it's not actual conservatism. It's what I call anti-liberalism, um, where the purpose isn't to uphold a set of uh, values that conservatives believe best preserve a liberal uh, political order. The, the purpose is to, as the saying goes, own the lids, and uh, the, irrespective of, of what of, of what policy is being uh, put into place. So if owning the libs means uh, uh, shaking hands with a tyrant like uh, Kim Jong-un, they're perfectly prepared to uh, accept that, even if even as we all know that if a president Hillary Clinton had met uh, Kim Jong-un in the same way, that the Ted Cruz's of the world would be uh, in, in, in full throat denunciation. But I, I want to add a point here, Jane, because I'm, I'm you know, I think I've been fairly outspoken in my dismay and disgust with the Trumpian uh, illiberal uh, demagogic turn of the Republican Party. But I think some attention ought to be paid to the extent to which um, the left in this country has often contributed uh, to uh, to the creation of Trumpism. You know, the problem with demagogues, Jane, isn't always that they are completely wrong. It's that they're half right. And it's the half right which is able to uh, um, to attract followers. And it's the half wrong and awful which leads them in, in, in frequently uh, atrocious directions. And I think that, you know, there are institutions in this country broadly liberal in both the, the uh, uh, or in the, in, the, in the ideological sense of the term, 
who have been unwitting accomplices to much of much of uh, the Trump phenomenon. Some of the tropes that were largely developed in the academic left over the past 50 years were uh, cunningly and malignantly used by, by Trump to make his case. So the politics of identity that really sprung up largely on the left in the last 50 years of the country were appropriated by Trump to become politics of white identity. The concepts of moral relativism or the idea that there's no such thing as truth were, was appropriated by the forces of Trump. The disdain for the Constitution and the rule of law as nothing more than a, than a, a system of power devised by self-interested white people 230-odd uh, years ago. Again, another feature that was, that was, that was used by Trump uh, for his own purposes. So the left also has its own accounting here that it needs to be careful that in, in the manner in which it proceeds, it is not ultimately uh, giving aid and comfort to the people it rightly despises. Thank you, Brett, for bringing that up. I think it's a really, really important point. What do you have to say, EJ? If you want to talk about what led to Trumpism, the critique I'd have uh, you know, about things we should have been paying more attention to uh, comes much more uh, if you will, from the economic progressive side. Um, it shouldn't have taken the rise of Donald Trump for free market conservatives or uh, liberals who defended uh, free trade and globalization. It should have taken Trump for people to realize, wait a minute, there are real costs of these policies uh, to working people in states not chosen at random, like uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, also in inner city areas that depended on blue collar work. Um, Trump, it shouldn't have taken Trump to come along and make us realize that there were injustices in the economy that we have to deal with. I think one of the powers of what you might call Bidenism, uh, and we'll see how it all works out, but I think Biden um, is a very helpful leader for this moment because he really instinctively gets um, the anger of part of the Trump constituency, as well as the anger of blue collar Latinos and African-Americans over what economic change has cost them. Uh, and he can make the argument empathetically about their uh, concerns and their situation without linking it to racism and racial reaction the way Trump does. He may be, uh, Bidenism may be uh, meeting this moment, but Heather, let me ask you about the whole notion of uh, President Biden's, I don't want to call it, a, his, his aspiration for bipartisanship, which based on the fact that it, the independent bipartisan commission to investigate what happened on January 6th at the Capitol uh, has been blocked, is not going to happen. Maybe they take another pass at that. But right now, it's not looking terrific for the whole bipartisanship, um, you know, motif. That brings us to something which I'd like you to address, because we're now in the section where we're going to talk about some things that we'd like to try and do to maybe shore up the democracy. The filibuster. The filibuster, uh, people say point blank, if you want democracy to stay, the filibuster has to go. So, I want to ask you what's your, um, not your feelings, but, but what's your take on whether or not we have to have the filibuster gone in order for us to make any progress in terms of the democracy? 
It's important to remember that the filibuster, the way it's being used now, is very, very recent. The filibuster exists because essentially the Senate never bothered in the early 19th century to figure out a way to make people stop talking. The House had to do it because it got much bigger than the Senate did quite quickly. So the House developed a system to stop discussion and to move forward to a vote. The Senate never really did that in the 19th century. And so there was always the option of continuing to push things forward without a vote by simply refusing to stop talking. So in the in the 20th century, the late 19th and the early 20th century, that refusal to stop talking generally gets deployed to stop civil rights legislation. When there is an overwhelming desire to go ahead within the Senate and change the rules of the country so that there are more civil rights, it tends to be reactionary Democrats who refuse to use the filibuster to go ahead, um, to, who use the filibuster to go ahead and make sure that those laws don't pass. So we, uh, in the 1970s, we get the filibuster, we get a number of adjustments to the filibuster, and those are really important for where we are right now. Because one of the things that happens from the 1970s onward, but especially in the 70s, is we remove from the ability to uh, be filibustered certain financial bills. So there are financial bills, and you see this under the budget reconciliation moves, there are certain bills that cannot be filibustered, and those are ones that are associated with money. Then, of course, under Harry Reid, we get uh, the removal of certain federal judges from the filibuster because uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell at the time, who has unusual powers because of the time in which he has gone to, to lead the Republican Party, were using the filibuster to make sure that there would be no, uh, that, uh, that President Obama would have a very hard time putting forward federal judges. And then, of course, we get um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blowing up the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court justices, which is how we get uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and uh, Justice Barrett. So there are ways in which uh, there are a bunch of pieces of legislation now that can be moved forward without being filibustered. And it's really important to remember that those are the things that Republicans care about. They care about judges, they care about financial bills, but they actively don't want to push anything else. So, for example, after the Sandy Hook massacre, when there was a huge popular push for going ahead and having some basic common sense background checks, for example, on the sale of certain weapons, uh, that that was filibustered and it was stopped, even though uh, 55, as I recall, senators wanted to vote for it. Similarly, with the establishment of a bipartisan independent commission to investigate what happened on January 6th, we had a majority of senators vote for that and a very small minority voting against it, 35, as I recall off the top of my head. But that was enough to sink what was a very popular measure. So we're having the filibuster now and there's this discussion about how this is all traditional and this is the way things should be and it creates bipartisanship. But in fact, until very recently, the Senate simply used a majority vote. Through the Civil War, for example, through the 1890s, through the 1930s, people used a simple majority. And what that forced people to do was, in fact, to create a, a sort of central area, as, as Brett said, people moved toward the center, they didn't move away. And it puts all the weight of, of the, the power of changing the laws on the Republican minority, on the minority, because all they care about is already not covered by the filibuster, where everything the Democrats care about is covered by the filibuster. And again, my thing is not Democrats versus Republicans. My thing is, how is democracy working in this moment? And right now, the filibuster is working against the representation of constituents at the highest levels of our government. And it's not a good thing under those circumstances.
Maria Teresa, we have another video question that's being asked again in the interest of trying to strengthen or deepen the democracy, and we'd like you to address it. Here it is. I'm Kyle from Stowe, Ohio. Two states, Maine and Alaska, use ranked choice voting because it gives voters more options while using an instant runoff to ensure a majority rules. Since 44% of Americans don't identify with either major political party, do you think more voters would advocate for ranked choice voting if they knew more about it? Maria Teresa, there are more states and cities using ranked choice voting. It's, it's a lot more being talked about that it weeds out third party candidates or um, as, as Heather was just talking about, it doesn't let candidates necessarily choose their voters because of the way it's structured. How do you feel about it? It's interesting. I'm also on the board of Emily's List, and we've done a lot of work on this because it turns out that women fare better when there's rank-based, uh, when it's ranked voting. And that's in part because you end up weeding out the high level of money in politics. You start paying more, much more attention to the issues, and unknown candidates can actually rise with their thoughts and their opinions and policy. Imagine that kind of debate. Uh, but it also is interesting what he points out. One of the things that we are seeing in the work that I do directly with Photo Latino is that young people in particular aren't identifying with the Democratic or Republican Party and instead filing for independence. So in the eve of what we will see in the next 10, 15 years, where a majority of young voters will eclipse older voters, this is this rank, this rank in choice in voting is going to become much more popular. And I'm and I'm not surprised by it because it actually will temper a lot of the sentiment of, of polarization. Um, I do want to you know bring back when Brett mentioned this idea of a liberal media. And I, I have to share with you that it is something that we must be very careful on when we tread. It's it's verbal expediency to say the liberal media, but if we were to take a, a real honest assessment of what happened under the Trump years, the reason that Trump was able to make such damage on the infrastructure of our institutions was that we were always trying to provide the best case scenario and giving him the benefit of the doubt all the way to the insurrection. On the Democratic side, of the party and the progressive movement, what people did when they didn't like who was chosen in a fair free election, what we did was we organized the day after his inauguration. On the right, when they didn't like the certification of a fair free election, they tried to overthrow our government. The reason that Trump rose was because we don't have a media describing the differences that America is having. And what I mean by that is we often talk about, talk about minority voters. We're actually talking about 135 million people, 40% of our population. That is not reflected in the chambers of government and it's not it reflected in our media newsrooms. So we keep missing the story. And so the more that we can have these honest conversations and talk about that the United States is absolutely changing and we're changing at a fast clip. But what does that mean for the future of our governance? And how do we have an inclusive, thriving democracy that reflects this ever-changing tapestry? And that is where the conversations we need to have. So I, would, I, I do want to highlight that because it's easy to, to use this, these words as currency, but not really unpacking that the rise of Trump had everything to do with the fact that no one was explaining the ever-changing American landscape that we're experiencing today. And that's the story that was missed. 
We're going to close out the show very shortly, but before we do that, we want to add a voice uh, who we had the honor of uh, talking with last fall on this show, on this broadcast, and that's historian John Meacham, who talked about the fact that the quest to sustain our democracy, to hold it together, we'll have a republic if we can keep it, is an ongoing struggle. And EJ, we're going to look at a clip from that show, and I'd like to ask you something on the other side of that. So here's John Meacham. Neither the present nor the future are well served by being nostalgic about the past and falling prey to a kind of superlative hyperbole about our own problems, right? So it's actually not wildly productive to say we've never been X or Y because we almost always have been. What's productive is to say, this is a critical moment. There are moment, there are features to this moment that could create a country for a long time that we, broadly put, we do not want. So what do we do about it? Well, one thing to do about it is to go back and look at what people did when they confronted similar crises in the past. And at almost every one of those points, the way America endured and the way America prevailed, both for good and for ill sometimes, was by realizing that they'd rather be an America that opened its arms as opposed to simply clenched its fists. EJ, you've written about the fact Actually, it was right after George Floyd's murder during the unrest of last summer that we have to renew our faith in, in history, in the trajectory of history, in, in each other, in the democracy. And my question to you right now is, how much faith do you have that that's still going to happen? Well, broadly, I agree with just about everything John Meacham said in that clip. And it's one of the reasons why I respect Heather's work, because I do think it is very important to look the American story, uh, look at the American story straight and to acknowledge that we have made many mistakes as a country, that racism has been part of our nation going back to to take the signal date 1619 when slaves came here. Um, at the same time, our nation has also been characterized with a history of struggle. Uh, and for decades, there have been movements um, struggling to make this a better country, a fairer country, a more equal country. One of my favorite speeches that President Obama gave was his speech on Selma, uh, because I thought it was the most hopeful view of our country married to a sense of realism. It is not a sense that we have been on one long trajectory upward with no interruptions. It's that we have always had people in America who have fought against injustice and against inequality and have tried to make us better. They have made progress, then they suffered setbacks. Reconstruction and it's being dismantled, civil rights, and then the backlash uh, against it, greater economic uh, equality because of the New Deal, and then some uh, pulling back because of what some would call, it's not a really great term, but I'll use it anyway, neoliberalism. Um, we've always had this, but we have remained, broadly speaking, 
on a trajectory that gives advocates of reform and equality and equality uh, a chance. Uh, and we can't give up on that. There's a quote that's ascribed to Churchill uh, that it's not clear he said. He's, Churchill is like Yogi Berra in having so many things ascribed to him. Um, this will be the first show in which Churchill has been compared to Yogi Berra, perhaps. Americans always do the right thing after first exhausting all the other possibilities. I've always liked uh, that quote. We need to be as aware of the threat to our democracy as you suggested at the very beginning of this show. Uh, we cannot be complacent about where we are. I am deeply worried about what is happening in these states to limit access to the ballot. It's why I think we need the For the People Act as well as the Voting Rights Act. Two other issues that we haven't mentioned that I just would love people to think about. Um, one is support for local media. We don't talk at all about the collapse of local media around the country, local newspapers that send people uh, into their state capitals or into their city halls. Uh, we really have to figure out how to revive local media. And lastly, um, we need a movement for civics and media education in our schools. Um, we live in a very complicated time. Uh, students uh, should be encouraged to take their responsibility uh, in a democracy. And in a very complicated media time, I think they need to understand uh, both the great possibilities inherent in these wonderful devices we have, uh, but also the ease with which they spread lies and disinformation. Uh, and we have to come to terms with that. And I think we ought to start talking about that in our schools um, when people are in high school and not much later, uh, when we are already asking our citizens to behave like small D Democrats. Brett, the last word for you is not about one of your columns. It's about one of your speeches. So that's different. And this is a speech you gave four years ago in Australia. You got a big reaction to it. It was on the dying art of disagreement. And you talk about the fact that healthy democracies are not forged when everybody agrees with one another. They come from the fact that people can, in a civil way, disagree. And we're living in a time where that's almost, uh, talk about the impossible dream, people are certain they're right, they're dug in, they make assumptions about other people based on not even knowing them half the time. So build the case for how we could uh, benefit if we learn to disagree more civilly? Well, look, uh, democracy never moved forward by consensus. Democracy moves forward by the dissenting view and by recognizing that there is something to that dissenting view. I will dissent slightly right now from the views of some of my fellow distinguished panelists by saying that, in my opinion, the idea that mainstream media is not overwhelmingly liberal is crazy but um, I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll disagree with me. Um, but the important point, perhaps, also, is that we can't really have a functioning democracy until we understand our opposition. It means engaging in real conversations. Those conversations can be painful, they can be difficult, um, but at least if they're done with the volume down, we can actually listen and learn and our democracy would be, uh, would be improved. Maria Teresa, you have two children, uh, Lucia and Eduardo, and they're young. And 
I guess we're, we're almost out of time, so I don't want to rush you, but I, I want to ask you what you would say to them if they came to you and said that they were concerned about what the things they're hearing at school about the country, you know, think we have trouble, there are problems. What do you, how do you try to, to tell your own children about the optimism you have for the future going forward? I think each of us here have to discover, uh, have to ask ourselves, how are we ancestoring for the children born? And when I say that is that when you look at the, the fragility right now of our democracy, it has everything to do with a fasting, changing de demographic. My children who are in third and first grade represent the technically the first generation of a multicultural America where there's not a majority, it's a majority minority. For, uh, and so when we look at representation in our highest office, we want to make sure that it reflects our children and that they have access to it. Everything about this country is worth fighting for. And I am a proud first generation American that had, knows what a broken democracy is. And when I start seeing this idea that we're not above board and we're not having clear conversations in our conversations in media, when we have members of Congress that are not fighting for our democracy, but have instead put on a partisan hat, it should make us all concerned because a thriving democracy needs to be scaffolded, it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be recognized. I completely agree with what EJ is saying. If you all can believe only eight states out of 50 states require a year of civic engagement of education in our democracy. Hmm. When close to 51% of our children, K through 12, are children of color, disproportionately first-generation immigrants, where are they learning about America? And how do we make sure that we make this a priority across partisanship lines? And I believe in healthy conversation when someone has an, you know, differing opinions. I always tell my parent, my my son and daughter to be respectful and not to use loaded words as such as crazy because they may they they may disagree and that you know that those conversations and that type of uh, ability to hear other people and other opinions really starts at home and so my hope is that that's what I'm paying forward with my children so that when they are in rooms where people have disagreements they are very thoughtful and very candid with the words that they choose so that we can continue having again dialogue but fixing the problem that our democracy right now is imperfect and we have to make sure that we are not only scaffolding it with a little d but also actively participating with the big d Heather Cox Richardson, the last question goes to you. And it's sort of playing off of something that Bill Moyers said, which is that in a world of thunderstorms, of social media and news whiplash, Heather Cox Richardson watches the waves come in. Last word to you, what wave are you watching right now? I think what he is referring to is that we are part of a longer history, those of us who are alive today, and that history in on this continent for this nation has been one in which we tried to live up to the principles in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that we are all created equal and should be equal before the law, 
And we've not lived up to that in the past for sure, but we have kept that like a lighthouse, if you will, guiding us onward. And I think what we're at right now is not only an attempt to uh, to restore a fact-based reality for our children in schools, but also for all of the older voters to have civic identification throughout our lifetimes so that we once and for all can do what Lincoln said and to preserve a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Rarely am I at a loss for words, but I am knocked out by the four of you, and I want to extend our heartfelt thanks to all of you for donating your time and talent today and for your insights into a complex issue which impacts all of us. Thanks for joining us today. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground. <laughs>